Amen. Well, um, like Anthony prayed, I do hope that this is the message that we need to hear this morning. Amen. Um, and if it's not the message you need to hear, I know at the very least it's the message I need to hear. Amen. Uh, let's start off here with a word of prayer and then we'll jump into the word of God. Father God, we thank you for this beautiful morning. We thank you for gathering us here together. God, we're excited to dig into your word. Father, we know that it cuts deep and we pray that it embeds deep convictions inside of our hearts. Father, convictions will never let go. Father, convictions that will guide us every day of our lives. Father, we love you so much. We thank you for the fellowship. We thank you for Jesus dying on the cross for us. Help us to really show our appreciation in how we live and in what we do. It's in your son's name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. 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 Well, you can be turning your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. Oh, come on, Joel. There's a, a guy that's kind of famous right now around the world. His name's Jeff Bezos. And if you don't know his name, perhaps you know of his company called Amazon. And Jeff Bezos, back in 1997, wrote a letter to his shareholders. And he called it the day one letter. And he just gave a bunch of promises filling his... His vision with uh, giving his vision to the shareholders so that they could find a lot of confidence in the direction that Amazon was going to go. And he's done a pretty successful job. In fact, if you would have invested $1,000 in 1997 in Amazon, right now that $1,000 would be worth almost $1.4 million. The company back in 1997 was bringing in revenue around $150 million. And Jeff Bezos himself, as of right now, July 2018, is worth over $150 billion. The first man to do it in this modern era. He's got this philosophy that he calls day one and day two philosophy. In day one philosophy, you avoid proxies. In other words, you don't get caught up so much with the statistics. You avoid processes, really not allowing the processes to take over how you run the business, but staying focused on the reward and the goals. Taking procedures that are very important, however, again, not prioritizing the procedure over the customers. Having a high-velocity decision-making and accountability. In fact, if you don't agree with something, you should still commit yourself to it for sake of unity in the company. And he calls it the disagree and commit philosophy. He believes wholeheartedly that as a business with day one philosophy, you got to recognize the issues early and escalate them immediately. Day two philosophy is basically when you stop doing all these things and your business starts to decline and eventually ends in the death of the business. So his framework is we've got to stay in a day one mentality. You know, I believe that God wants the same for our lives. In an interesting way, I think that today's lesson is going to be a bit of um, some preventative teaching. And the temptation for all of us when we get into a relationship with God is to lose convictions, to backslide in our beliefs and our commitment, to pull back our hearts. And yet that is not the plan of God. The church now, today, is not in the day one philosophy. It's not even in the day two philosophy. We're in year 2000. And Christianity has become so distorted. 
and so full of hypocrisy. And not the fact that these are sinful people, but the fact that it's being so tolerated around the church. And that's really the issue, because no matter who you are, you're going to continue to sin no matter when you get saved in your life. And so my prayer today is that we really build deep convictions from the word of God in how to maintain our day one mindset. The title of our message this morning is Day One Hearts. Point number one, appetite to learn. Here in Acts chapter two, in verse 36, this is the day of Pentecost, 50 days after Jesus himself is resurrected from the dead. And Peter stands up and he preaches a very powerful sermon and it really stirred the crowd to respond to his sermon. And very literally, he ends his sermon with this high intensity message. And he goes, therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. When the people, when the crowd heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. What was the message that these people had to accept? Their sins killed Jesus. Because of the power of God, God was able to raise Jesus back to life. And because of that, we have the opportunity to repent and change. And then get baptized and have all of our sins, past and future, forgiven. So that we can be filled now with the Holy Spirit. Because you've got to empty the vessel of all the garbage before you can fill it up with the good stuff. And the people, they, they, they thought it was a good message, but they hadn't accepted it. And so there in verse 40, he's pleading with them. He's begging them, please understand how important this is. Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. And don't we live in a corrupt generation? And those people accepted the message. They repented of their sins. They were baptized and the Lord continued to grow to their number. Look here in verse 42. It says they devoted themselves to the apostle teaching, fellowship, breaking bread and the prayer. Who's they? The three thousand people plus the pre-existing disciples and it just summarizes everyone into they there was no distinction between the original disciples and all the new disciples because everyone was equally equally committed it says they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching fellowship breaking of bread into prayer everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Appetite to learn. You know, the Bible teaches right here that they devoted themselves. The word they in the Greek is more like addicted, attended constantly. These people could not help but to be together 
for the fellowship and the strengthening they were getting from the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and to prayer. That's awesome. mm-hmm. You know, the Bible teaches about a number of different people over the years that had a heart to learn. And David being one of the primary examples in the Old Testament, David had a huge heart to learn. In fact, the Bible says that God, well, God said, David has a heart after me. He's a man after my own heart. And that's really what God wants. God, this morning, guys, he wants your heart. He wants you to have that day one heart, that appetite to learn. You remember the the first day, the first week of college? Yeah. You remember just your appetite to learn, joining your favorite major, getting excited about your future and what's going to happen? And it filled inside of you an appetite to grow and to learn in your knowledge so you can apply these things and one day get a career in your dream job. And if you lose that by your senior year, people start switching majors. They start transferring schools. Some even drop out of college because they lose the vision. And the Bible says without vision, the people perish. So what's the goal? The goal is to get fired up on day one mm-hmm. and to stay fired up on day two just as much as on day one. And year two, year three, year five, year 10, year 50, you're just as fired up as day one. Yeah, on. We've got to have day one hearts and how we are devoted to the apostle teaching, fellowship, bringing bread into prayer. You guys with me here? Yeah, yeah. Come on. You know, Paul gets baptized in Acts chapter nine, just like the rest of these guys. And then it says... <laughs> After a few sentences, and I'll explain what those sentences are in just a moment. It says that he goes on to Arabia for three years. And then he goes to Jerusalem for the first time to get acquainted with the other apostles. Why did Paul disappear for three years? Well, as soon as he was baptized, he knew that he needed to grow and he needed to learn. And who best to learn from? But Jesus himself. You see, Mount Sinai is in Arabia. And Mount Sinai is where Moses would speak to the Lord. And so Paul goes to Arabia to go to Mount Sinai because he wanted to see if he could speak to the Lord. And in in Galatians chapter 1, it says, while he was in Arabia, the Lord uh, came to him in revelations. And for three years, he one-on-one learned from Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing? You go, well, how could Jesus be in Arabia and still leading the church back in the book of Acts? Well, it's pretty cool. When you're God, you can just kind of be everywhere at the same time. So meanwhile, the church back in Jerusalem was growing and growing and growing. And by the time Paul gets there, he goes, hey, guys, listen, I know I didn't physically walk with Jesus like the rest of you guys, but I'm an apostle, abnormally born, and you are to accept me into your fellowship of leaders. And they questioned him, and then they allow him to come in. And Paul maintained that day one hunger to learn from Jesus. You know, for us, we need to maintain that hunger for the truth. That hunger for the truth. There's never a point in time where we should ever get in our relationship with God where we feel like we now know enough. So many people pick up the Bible, learn a couple things, and go, well, you know, if those are the basics, then I'm good to go. And that's not someone that's hungry for the truth. We don't do that with our jobs, do we? No, once you have the career that you want, you're trying to climb the ladder. You want to you become the best that you can in your career. We don't do that with our hobbies, do we? No, we want to get better and better and better and better. We don't do that in our relationships, do we? Oh, well, it's mediocre, but it's good enough. Hopefully this person's going to be okay with the fact that we got an all right relationship. No, you want to get closer. You want to bond. You want to grow. And we certainly should never do this to God. Mm-hmm. You see, our heart to God always has to be, you know what, Lord? 
I am hungry to learn from you. And the Bible says you're going to be blessed if you hunger and thirst for righteousness. You know, we got to make sure that when we study the word, when we're praying, we're always getting our fill. We're always getting our fill. It's very important to understand that just reading the Bible is not going to give you faith. Yeah. In Romans 10, 17, it says, consequently, faith comes from hearing the message. Yeah. But the word there, hearing, doesn't have anything to do with what's entered into your brain through your ears. It's all about now how you're going to live your life. Mm-hmm. And the, real, the word that, that, that it continues to repeat is not hearing, but rather accepting and understanding. Mm-hmm. So our heart to get filled from the word is not just about listening to messages. You know, some people just open up their Bible app, press play, and then they listen to it for 30 minutes and they go, wow, great. I just had a quiet time. I'm going to naturally, magically grow in my faith because I just listen to the word and that's what the word does. No, you've got to study it out. You've got to grow in your understanding. You've got to grow in your knowledge. And that only comes when you be like the Bereans in Acts 17 and you eagerly examine every day. You guys with me here? You know, this third little sub point is a little gross. I don't want you to picture it, but we need to regurgitate what we learn, what we take in. You know, that's how mother birds feed their baby chicks, don't they? They kind of throw up the food and then the babies eat the food. Is that not right? I think that's not, didn't I see that on the Discovery Channel when I was a kid? Yeah, that's how it And in a very real way, as, as, as we grow in our faith, as we grow in our knowledge, we need to take on the word of God to build our own convictions and regurgitate. Yeah. More, more like repeat what we've now learned to those around us so they too can learn and grow from our convictions. You guys with me here? Yeah. I mean, I'm just so proud of our brother Anthony Melbrick. Come on, bro. Anthony moves here to Seattle at the tail end of last year, not doing very well in his faith, not even sure if he wanted to be a Christian anymore. And he gets here. And immediately hits the ground. He's like, you know what? I've been tanking it in my walk with God. I don't have a lot of faith. Can you guys help me out a little bit? And of course, we pour our hearts into him. And now look at him. He's leading a Bible talk. And there's some other plans in the near future. But Anthony's really raising on up. And it's because of his humility. It's because of his humility. Appetite to learn. Are you still hungry for God's word? I mean, I know you're hungry for those eggs in the morning. I know you want your favorite bowl of cereal, but do you look forward to just as much getting into the Word of God and learning from God? Yeah, bro. You know, whenever Jeff Bezos, since 1997, writes another letter to his shareholders, he always attaches the day one letter. Do you have some Amazon stock? Uh, (laughs) He always attaches the day one letter. Why? Because he wants everyone to maintain that humility and that drive and that hunger from day one. This is not a hope and something that they spread around the company in hope that everyone does. This is an expectation. You will get fired if you lose your day one mentality. And he wants the shareholders to be fully sure. This is the commitment that we all have in the company. And I think in the church... How much more so for our God do we need to maintain that day one heart? You guys with me here? I mean, every day to learn and then maintain that knowledge and grow closer to God. Point number two, boldness to preach. Now, I mentioned Paul, but let's go to Acts chapter 9. Because he didn't get baptized and then jump in a chariot and ride off to Arabia. Something happened 
in between. We'll start our reading in verse 15. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Now, this is Jesus speaking right here. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it, placing his hands on Saul. He said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you would see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes. He could see again. He got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once, he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on his name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. After many days had gone by, the Jews conspired to kill him. But hold up. I I thought it just said they were all listening to him. And I thought that the gospel message fills us with faith. So why are they trying to kill him? Because they heard, but they did not understand. They did not accept the message. They they conspired to kill him, verse 24. But Saul learned of their plan. Day and night, he kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him. You see, between verse 25... In 26, there's a space of three years that you can read about in Galatians chapter 1 and chapter 4. But you know, right here, we see that Saul gets baptized. And at once, he's preaching in the synagogues. Now, he didn't go out to preach to the atheists. He didn't go out to preach to the Gentiles. He's preaching in the synagogues. I mean, literally, Paul wants to preach to the same guys that just killed Jesus. You want to kill Jesus? You got to come through me. And he shows up and he preaches day in and day out. But he gives into some fear here. And then when they they come after his life, he has his followers to lower him in a basket through the wall. He got scared and he talks about it later in his epistles, how ashamed he was of that moment. But bottom line, Paul had the boldness to preach. But it wasn't just Paul. Look back in chapter 8. Come on. Right after Stephen is killed, Stephen was the very first martyr of the first century church. And it wraps up the whole account here in chapter 8, verse 1. It says, Saul was there giving approval to his death, to Stephen's death. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul, Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. You know, before Saul became a Christian, he was literally out to kill Christians. That's why his conversion is so miraculous. That's why his humility is so amazing. Because he's killing Christians. The people that are trying to spread the gospel. And when that day of persecution hit... The Bible says the disciples were scattered. Was it because they were scared? Was it because they were afraid? No. It was because this was a sign of God. 
it was time to spread out from Jerusalem and now go into Judea and Samaria as the great Lord Jesus had prophesied back in Acts chapter 8, verse 1. But you know, right here, the Bible says in verse 4, that everyone who had been scattered, they preached the word everywhere they went. Does this sound like a group of cowards? No. Does this sound like people that are afraid to share their faith? No. Are they so scared of the persecution back in Jerusalem that when they would go out into all these new cities, that they were just hiding from the persecution? No. They were planting churches all around the world. They were so inspired by the death of their brother Stephen. We need to have boldness to preach. You guys with me? Let's look over in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, we see Paul share his conviction in how he became so bold. Hope we can appreciate some Bible study. Amen? Amen. I know we have an appetite for the truth here. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, we'll start our reading in verse 13. Paul says to the church in Corinth, Don't you know that those who work in the temple get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in what is offered at the altar? In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive from their living, should receive their living from the gospel. But I have not used any of these rites. And I'm not writing this in hope that you will do such things for me. I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of that boast. You see right here, Paul says, listen, I know that I'm a preacher. I know that I'm bold in my preaching. And I know that in every way I have the opportunity and the right to collect a paycheck from the church. But I don't. And I don't want to. I would rather die before the church pays me to preach the word. Sounds like a deep conviction to me. Well, what was his heart? Verse 16. Yet when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast, for I am compelled to preach. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. If I preach voluntarily, I have a reward. If not voluntarily, I am simply discharging the trust committed to me. What then is my reward? Just this, that in preaching the gospel, I may offer it free of charge and so not make use of my rights in preaching it. You know, Paul's heart right here is clear. Paul says, my job is not to preach the gospel. My job is not to lead a church. My job is not to be a missionary because that is just who I am. That is just what I do. And whether I get a paycheck or not, I'm going to do it. Because that's my calling by God. So why collect a paycheck to do something I ought to already be doing? That's a deep conviction right there. I mean, wouldn't you like to get paid for your hobby? Wouldn't you like to get paid for the things that you enjoy to do? I mean, growing up, I thought that there was a miracle shot. I'd make it into the NBA. And I thought, wow, it would be so cool to get paid millions of dollars to just play basketball. Maybe some of you guys had some dreams like that, what we call hoop dreams. But you know, Amen. that was Paul's heart. He makes it very clear. He goes, I'm going to do it regardless. In fact, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Woe to me. You go, what does that mean? Well, in Matthew chapter 23... Jesus gives seven woes to the Pharisees. 
And every single woe ends in them, ends in them going to hell. And Paul himself in his epistle says, as far as his convictions on the scriptures, he himself is a Pharisee. In other words, it was Paul's deepest conviction that if he started to collect a paycheck from the church, it would end in him falling away and going to hell. He says, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. This is what I was born for. What do you think your destiny is? What is your destiny? Is it to preach the gospel? It is. It is. Whether you lead a church or not, as disciples, we preach the gospel. That's what Jesus was all about. We need to be bold in our evangelism. Amen? Amen. You know, our brother's not with us right now. He's teaching at Kids Kingdom in in the other house church, but I got to lift up our brother Tyrese. I mean, Tyrese is bold when he preaches the gospel. He's always got friends and guests out to stuff. I mean, the, the guy is an animal when it comes to preaching the gospel. And when you first meet him in the fellowship, maybe you're not too impressed by his nerdiness, but you, you put a Bible in his hands, and he is a man of deep convictions. And it's going to be so exciting today when Emeka gets baptized. Because that's going to be Tyrese's, in a sense, first fruit. I mean, don't you remember that day when you got your first fruit? Don't you dream of the day when you get your first fruit? I mean, this is the Lord using you to literally grab a soul out of the world and bring him into his kingdom. And we give all the glory to God, but it sure does feel good to be used by the Lord. You guys with me here? You know, we don't boast because we preach. We're going to preach no matter what we do, no matter where we are, no matter what the Lord calls us to. As disciples of Jesus, we're going to preach the word. Amen. Jesus is our master. We have submitted ourselves to him. We need to make sure that we maintain, like Paul, that immediate response to be bold in our preaching, that day one heart. Yeah. I want to talk for a little bit about communion. Let's look over in Luke chapter 22. We'll read here in Luke chapter 22, verse 19. Jesus says, And I took bread, and he took bread, gave thanks and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body. Given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant of my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as if as, uh, will go as it has been decreed, but woe to the man who betrays him. You see, communion is a time where we remember Jesus. Mm -hmm. The bread represents his body that was broken. The juice represents his blood that was spilt for us. And this was something that the disciples, prior to Jesus' death on the cross, but also continued on after Jesus rose from the dead, as a practice to remember their relationship with Jesus. Look over in Acts chapter 20. Come on, Joel. Verse 7. On the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. Paul spoke to the people 
And because he intended to leave the next day, kept on talking until midnight. It's a pretty awesome story. You can read it later. But bottom line, we learn from this passage and many other hints throughout the book of Acts that it was a regular occurrence for the church to meet together on the first day of the week and take communion in remembrance of Jesus. Look over in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. In verse 16. It says, Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the, blood, the bread that we break a participation in the blood of Christ? But there is one loaf. We, who are many, are one body. For we all partake in the one loaf. Yeah. Go over to chapter 11, verse 20. Come on, Joel. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. One remains hungry, another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. For I receive from the Lord what I also pass on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it, it uh, in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup from the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. Mm. A man ought to examine himself before he eats the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many among you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we judged ourselves... We would not come under judgment. When we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for each other. If anyone's hungry, you should eat at home. So that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I'll give you further direction. You know, Paul right here says, number one, communion is to help us remember Jesus' death on the cross for our sins. Secondly, it proclaims the Lord's death. And his challenge is you've got to examine yourself. Examine yourself. You've got to look in your heart and make sure there's no unrepentant sin. Mm-hmm. Because if there is unrepentant sin, you are just like Judas who sat in front of Jesus. And without repenting of his betrayal took the bread and the juice. Is that not intense? Judas would drink judgment on himself. And when we take communion without examining and without repenting, we sin. We drink judgment on ourselves. Communion is a very serious time. It's a practice that was imposed on the church by God. To constantly encourage repentance. Mm -hmm. To constantly encourage repentance. Because when everybody together, the body together, the bread together, takes communion properly, your heart breaks. 
you repent of your sins. And because of your remembrance of Jesus, and now the fact that you get to take up your cross, deny yourself every day, and you yourself get to allow Christ to live through you, the Bible teaches that that will bring quite a joy into your life. Does repentance not bring refreshment? Mm -hmm. And are those refreshed not refresh others? And the idea of communion is that when we take it, we take it seriously. That we repent. We we deny our sins, but we accept the forgiveness. And when you really accept the forgiveness, there's no more guilt. There's no more fear. Perfect love drives out fear. There's there's, there's no more worry. There's, There's no unconfessed stuff that someone's going to find out. And it produces inside of you this intense joy and gratitude. And the fellowship after communion is so much greater Mm -hmm. than any other time because we appreciate the blood of Jesus. You know, some of us are under the mindset that communion is supposed to be this kind of solemn, down, slow, reflective, meditation kind of time. In fact, it is, but only temporarily. In fact, your meditation is only to make sure you're obeying the Bible. The solemnness is only in humility to make sure that you're connecting to all your sin. But then once you take the communion, your eyes have got to light up like day one out of the waters of baptism. Because the sin is gone, the guilt is gone, the joy is there, and now everyone's excited. You know, right here though, Paul says, some of you are weak and sick and fallen asleep. Those who struggle spiritually and allow the sin to continue in their life without the heart of repentance, do they not get weak and sick and eventually fall asleep spiritually? Do they not get weak and struggle? And that turns into sickness. They, They look sick. They act sick. And eventually, do they not fall away? Where does it start? It starts with communion. I'm telling you guys, every time we take communion, We need to be like day one out of the waters of baptism, freshly forgiven of all of our sin. Let's learn this principle. Let's learn how to take communion. And this is one of the reasons why I wanted to do the lesson before communion later. So we can really go into it with a pure joy (coughs) and a true understanding. And the fellowship after church will be even more exciting. Amen? Amen. The fourth point is discipleship partnerships. Look over in Mark chapter 6. In Mark 6, verse 7, well, right before that, Then Jesus went around teaching from village to village, calling the twelve to him. He sent them out two by two and gave them authority over evil spirits. Now, isn't that awesome? When Jesus sent out the apostles, when he sent out his guys, he sent them out two by two. Mm-hmm. Why did he send them out two by two? Why not three by three? Why not four by four? Well, two by two spreads you thin, but not too thin. And if one of the guy's chickens out, he can be encouraged by the other guy. And so he would send the disciples out two by two. And wouldn't you have it? Wouldn't you know that Jesus' plan is that disciples get made, they get baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, right? Matthew 28, 19, and 20. And then when they're raised again, then the Bible teaches they get taught to obey everything. By who? By another disciple. And so Jesus' plan from day one is to give every single Christian a discipleship 
partnership. Come on. Awesome. And this partnership is not one that is only found once a week in a living room, but that they go out together to preach the gospel together, to get open together, to live life together. You go, well, how do you know that? Look over in Acts chapter 1. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus is now ascended up into heaven, back in verse 9. And it says in verse 12, When they returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, the Sabbath day's walk from the city, when they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip, and Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew, James, and Alphaeus, and Simon, the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They were all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. What do you see right here? The apostles are not just listed, but they're listed in pairs. That this was the plan of God. This was Jesus' plan. He sent them out two by two, and he had them pair up because those were going to be their lifelong best friends. Now, you might look at this pastor and go, how how are these guys going to become best friends? I mean, they're so different, right? You got Matthew, the tax collector, who's hated by Jews. And then you got a guy like Simon the Zealot, who absolutely hates the Roman government. And you got these guys paired up in the same group. Like, how would they ever get along? That was the plan of Jesus, to diversify the leadership. Because if you can see two leaders who are completely abstract and different from each other, get along and be totally unified, it gives the church hope that anybody can change and anybody can become best friends. You know, this was the plan, to pull the disciples together. But this really is the paradox of our century, our generation. I mean, the idea of friends is so loose in our world, it's ridiculous. It's sad. I mean, what's up, man? You're my friend. He's my friend. She's my friend. Love you, bro. These terms are just thrown out there. They're, they're in frats. They're all over the place. And yet, these are not true friendships. I mean, you can literally just click a confirm button on the internet, and all of a sudden, you've got a great friend. And, and you're in their business. I mean, you can learn all about their life. You can learn who their mom is and where her, her Facebook page is. And you know how many animals they got in their house. I mean, there's, there's an intimacy that's formed. And we're, we're, we complicate things. We go, oh, well, now I got friends. <laughs> Jesus defined friends by people that obeyed God. He says in John chapter 15, verse 15, you're my friends if you do what I command. My friends are those... Who do the will of God. Mm-hmm. And you know, if you're sitting in this room today and you want to be a friend of God, you have a choice to obey God. And when we all choose to obey God, we can actually use the word friend and mean it. You guys with me here? Yeah. Yeah. We need discipleship, partnerships, real friendships. Jesus prayed. We're not going to go into all these passages, but Jesus prayed for it in John 15. He stayed up all night praying for the unity of the church. Mm. Paul begged people for it in 1 Corinthians 1. He appeals to the church and he writes a whole letter about how important it is that they get unified. John warns us against it in 1 John 3. He says, when you guys stop getting along, you're going to show hatred toward each other and hatred's just as bad as murder. And he begs the disciples to love each other with the love that God offers. James says, listen, it's no good to just see the needs of the church but to actually go out and meet the needs of the church. Faith without deeds is dead. You may see that your brother's in need, but if you just say, hey, stay warm and well-fed and do nothing about it, he says, your faith is dead. Mm -hmm. You got to show your faith. 
and deeply love each other. You know, if Jesus, Paul, John, James, if all these guys are talking about how important it is that we get unified, I think we can assume that God expects deep discipleship partnerships. You know, the things that we've talked about today, the appetite to learn, the boldness to preach, take communion every week, discipleship partners. I mean, these really are the ABCs of day one discipleship. And when you master these areas in your life, you maintain that day one heart. I'm telling you, you will make it to the very end. There's no doubt in my mind that somebody who is constantly humble and learning about the Bible, somebody that is bold in their preaching and then growing in their knowledge of God, somebody who's committed to taking communion properly every week, someone who's committed to another man or another woman, there's no doubt in my mind that person will go to heaven. There's no doubt in my mind. They will make it to the very end. My brothers and sisters, I appeal to you this morning. Let us have that day one heart so together we can go to heaven and see God in glory. Amen. Amen.